A recent Senate Armed Services Subcommittee hearing raised questions of integrity and the so-called revolving door between industry and the Defense Department. The project on government oversight was among the witnesses, saying there's too much industrial influence on Pentagon decisions coming from former officers and high-level civilians. Here with a summary, POGO's government affairs manager, Dylan Hetler-Gaudet. Dylan, good to have you back. Hey, thank you, Tom. It's great to be back. And I thought the revolving door ethics issues were solved a long time ago, but apparently not. No, they weren't solved a long time ago, unfortunately. We still have a pretty pervasive and pernicious challenge around the revolving door and corporate and industry influence, particularly at the Pentagon, though I want to be clear, this is not only a Pentagon issue. This is something that affects broadly agency activities across the entire federal government. People who leave and go to industry do so under certain ethical restrictions that are in place and certain legal restrictions that are in place. So is your contention that even following the letter of whatever the regulations and the statutes are still results in conflicts of interest? That's correct. Yeah, a lot of the existing rules and restrictions are insufficient to the task. One other particularly frustrating thing, specifically around the Pentagon, is each NDAA cycle, pretty much, maybe not everyone, but every couple of NDAA cycles, the Pentagon actually goes to Congress and tries to convince them to reduce and remove some of the restrictions and the rules that do exist already. NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, where all of this comes out to play every year. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I should try to refrain from the alphabet soup there. Uh, yes, the NDAA is the annual defense policy bill where all of the top line spending levels are set. That's not actually where money is appropriated, though. That has to happen in the Appropriations Committee. But the top line levels are set and the policies are made. So it's a pretty critical time and it ends up being somewhat of a feeding frenzy as far as the interest of defense industry players being advanced. And this is where the revolving door really rears its ugly head. Well, give us some recent examples of where this might have been manifest in Defense Department decisions. So one clear example is the F-35 program, which has not even come close to living up to its billing. And there have been hundreds of millions and billions of dollars already spent on the F-35, and it hasn't even met any of its initial testing requirements. It's basically an inoperable system at this point. It's just an extraordinarily expensive pilot program at this juncture, a prototype, if you will. But each year, more money keeps being allocated to that particular boondoggle, and a lot of that has to do with the influence that the defense companies who are responsible for building that plane have when it comes to Congress and when it comes to the Pentagons. Well, there have been a succession of program managers, typically from the Air Force, to oversee that program, and they have had resets and admonitions to industry, but apparently none of it has really had any fundamental effect. Yes, and part of that is a broader problem. The problem is the Pentagon. It's, it's all over the place as far as people in Congress also not doing what they should be doing around making these responsible decisions. And also you have a revolving door issue between congressional staff and the very same defense companies that are at play here when it comes to the revolving door at the Pentagon. So it's all sort of intertwined and meshed and it creates bad policy. It creates overspending. It creates waste, fraud and abuse. And that's really why we're advocating for new rules and for beefing up existing rules around you know, corruption and integrity and the revolving door. And we'll get to those. I just wanted to ask about one more manifestation of this. I mean, the F-35 is ostensibly a new program and it could be fixed and we would have a great new fighter at some point in the future. But also your testimony cites the continuance of obsolete programs that even Absolutely some the people... literal combat, if I think you're probably thinking of, yes. Well, that, yeah. And some of the, even I guess maybe the A-10 program, another Air Force jet... But the idea is that the Pentagon itself would like to get rid of these things, but somehow this industry 
revolving door complex keeps them alive at the expense of other programs. Yes. So when it comes to the A-10, we actually take the view that we need to keep the A-10 until we've developed a suitable replacement. And the problem is right now we haven't yet developed a suitable replacement for that close air support capacity that the A-10 provides. And if you mothball a program and you don't have a suitable replacement already ready to go, then you're putting troops on the ground in real, real danger in any potential war theaters. But the A-10 is actually, I don't think, a very good example. But there are definitely examples of where Pentagon goes to Congress, says, we don't need any more of these destroyers. We don't need any more of these planes but Congress continues to plus them up and say, well, you're going to take them and you're going to like it. And then they have fewer of the platforms that they wish they had more of that are maybe don't have such great support. That's right. Obviously, you have opportunity cost. I mean, it does seem like there is somehow an infinite supply of money that we're able to throw every year at the Pentagon, but there are real opportunity costs there. Every $100 billion you spend on X means there are a few hundred million you can't spend more wisely on Y. We are speaking with Dylan Hetler-Gaudet, the government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. All right, so what should change here for the ultimate goal of spending to be more efficient and for decisions to be based more on merit? That's our goal here? Absolutely. But I say decision-making needs to be more based on merit, and it also needs to be more based on strategy and not what's going to boost the profits of the Beltway Bandits in the current fiscal year. But as far as what we need to change, you mentioned earlier that there are some rules in place around the revolving door. Specifically, there are cooling off periods. There are some restrictions on what you can do when you leave the Pentagon and you try to seek employment in the private sector. We think those rules and restrictions need to be expanded to include a broader swath of people as they're leaving. Right now, they tend to be targeted specifically at acquisition and procurement officials, which is good. You certainly want them included in these restrictions, but the restrictions have to be broader because there is an entire chain of command where decisions are made you know, across the board, and you have to include a much larger universe of people to really be trying to get at that problem of industry capture and of the revolving door once people leave the Pentagon. So you need to expand who's covered. You need to restrict more of the kinds of places that people can go to once they leave the Pentagon. We also think there need to be some enhanced recusal requirements when people are coming into the Pentagon, because obviously that's the other end of the revolving door. It swings both ways. It's people coming into government and it's people leaving government. You know, so we need those upfront restrictions and rules around what you can work on and who you can talk to when you enter government, but also where you can go to work and who you can speak to once you've left government. So those are basic things. We need to expand cooling off periods right now. You either have a one or a two year cooling off period, depending on what level of employment you're at when you leave the federal government. We think that should be expanded to a couple more years. We also think there need to be some rules around when you're at the Pentagon you know, you're actively employed there in some way or another, but there have to be rules around what kind of investments, what kind of financial entanglements you can have while you're serving in those roles. So right now there is the restriction where you can't be invested in any of the top 10 defense contractors. If you're an acquisition or procurement professional at the DOD, or if you're above a certain grade level, we think that needs to be expanded to the top 100 defense contractors. And it also needs to expand to include a broader number of people at the Pentagon. Well, I mean, general officers typically retire and they go on to boards or think tanks, is there or should there be or any kind of distinction between what they do? For example, if you're on a board of a company, you may or may not be involved in decisions on sales and bids and award seeking, whereas if you become an operational executive as opposed to a board member, you might be involved in procurements and bid preparation. 
you know, I think it's reasonable to try to take an exacto knife to these problems and create reasonable thresholds. I think it's also important to remember, though, that a lot of what happens is a big company in the defense space will hire someone away who has a big name once they've retired from the Pentagon. And there's still a bit of a cachet that is being cashed in on there, some, some relationships that are being you know exploited there in some ways. And we also need to really have true transparency around the types of conversations that are happening between a potential employee who's about to leave DOD and a prospective employer, because that can be a sort of indirect behind the scenes way that some kind of influence can be, you know, peddled, you know, without there being a direct causal relationship between a particular contract, you know, or an award or a procurement decision. But it's still problematic because it can have an impact on how decisions are made at DOD if someone you know, has an eye toward what's going to happen next, like what's their next job going to be. And they may be a little bit preferential toward whoever that prospective employer is going to be. And if people are benefiting from this in the congressional branch and the executive branch, who's going to be behind these ideas? Yeah, that, that is the uh, $850 billion question there, Tom. It is hard to get people to really buy in on this in a broad-based way because you're right. There are so many people who are at the trough, you know, feeding from this particular toxic cocktail of influence and corporate capture. And, you know, there's just a lot of money to be made, a lot of money to be had, a lot of, you know, power to be wielded here. So it is definitely an uphill battle. But we are, you know, we are always here. We've been here since the 80s, basically crying out for the same kinds of reforms. We've had some successes here and there, some incremental progress, but um, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you it's going to be easy uh, because we are up against the full might and force of the military industrial congressional complex for sure. All right. It's why we keep reading the book of Jeremiah. Dylan hetler Gaudet is government affairs manager at the Project on Government Oversight. As always, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century 
educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, 
we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.